We've been looking at, at least over the past couple of weeks, a couple of psalms of ascent. Last week we looked at Psalm 124, what if? What if the Lord had not been on our side when the storms raged against us, when we were lost and without hope, we were objects of wrath, we were outside of Jesus Christ, awaiting an eternity apart from the living God. But Jesus Christ has come in the fullness to save us. Today we're going to look at Psalm 125. Psalm 125 is all about trusting God, trusting God in adversity. Job 5, 7 says, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Well, let's look to Psalm 125. Let's read it together, or I will read it aloud. Please follow along, then I will pray for us. This is God's holy word, a song of ascent, Psalm 125, beginning at verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord, that is, Yion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands and do wrong. Do good, O Lord Yahweh, to those who are good, to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord Yahweh will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Thus far the reading of his holy word, let us pray and ask his blessing. Lord, we come before you as the one who is our good, the Lord, our righteousness, Jesus Christ, our ever-living head, our high priest, the captain of our salvation, the lover of our soul, who gave his life to redeem us from the pit and set our feet on the rock of himself. We would pray and ask now in the power of your Holy Spirit, he would come and be our teacher, illuminate the word that you have revealed through your prophet. Father, may you get glory for yourself. May you lift up the downcast and the brokenhearted. May the bruised reed find Jesus Christ to be a faithful and kind and gentle Savior. And may the proud and the haughty be brought low. May they be brought to repentance, a godly sorrow, that they might turn from their sin and look to the King, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we now pray. Amen. Friends, no one is immune from trouble. As Job 5, 7 said, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. I see that vivid metaphor and I think of a camping trip, right? You think of a, sitting around a fire and watching the sparks as they fly into the heavens only to be extinguished in but a moment. So is man. Friends, no one is immune from trouble. All of us need to learn how to trust God through it to grow up in faith as we become more childlike in our dependence and trust of God. Psalm 34, 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Acts 14, 22, it is through many tribulations that one enters the kingdom of God. John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. Those who desire, as Paul will go on to say to Timothy, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer. 
Beloved, so many of the Psalms are about God's deliverance from suffering, from his protection to sustain us even as he calls us to walk through trials and difficulties and adversity. Trials and adversity from the unbelieving world that surrounds us. In Psalm 125, we see the pilgrims trust, their, their confidence in the midst of adversity. You see, trusting God is how we get into the kingdom. You must come through faith, faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, the, the narrow gate. But not only is trust and faith the entryway into the kingdom of God, it's the way we grow as well. As we grow in trust and our reliance and seeing God as being sufficient and able to do more than he can or we can even ask or imagine. Trust that leans on God's word, that lives by his word and not by sight. Well, this is exactly what Psalm 125 is about, learning to trust God in tough times. You see, trials are the venues where God shows or demonstrates himself to be God, and that his word can be trusted. You see, anyone can believe God when the skies are sunny and the skies are blue. I've got that. I can believe. I can trust him. <laughs> when it's 78 degrees and I'm around the pool and I'm having an umbrella drink, that's no problem there. But can I trust him when I don't sense his presence? When I, like the psalmist in Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Where are you, God? I don't see that smiling face behind that frowning providence that the hymn writer speaks of. You see, beloved, God's objective is to bring us in conformity to Jesus Christ, and the way that he does that is through growing us up in faith, growing us up in trust, to get us to see with our ears, to see with our ears as we learn to trust his word in spite of our circumstances. That's what the Christian is called to do, to, to see with his ears. What trials, what difficulties, what opportunities has God brought into your life today? What threats to your peace, your plans, what challenges do you face? You see, all of these are opportunities to trust God, to lean not on your own understanding, but to acknowledge him in all your ways and to see him Show himself strong and mighty to save people. And for him to be the living God, the God who deals with his people in time and space and history. You see, he shows himself to be our God, strong and mighty. Well, Psalm 124 gives us four blessings, four blessings of those who will trust God. Stability, security, his goodness, and his holiness. These are the four blessings, if you will. His stability. Those who trust God know his stability. They, they know his security. They know his goodness, and they know his holiness. Well, let's look at the first one. Those who trust God know his stability. Verse 1, right out of the gate. The psalmist says, those who trust in the Lord. 
It's his personal name here. When you see it, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's his covenant name. That's the name he disclosed to Moses at the burning bush. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who keeps covenant. The God who is covenantly faithful in his Hesed love. That's who he is. I am that I am. I am Yahweh, your God. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved. You see, this is the person who's come to trust, rely, cling to Jesus Christ. The Hebrew word for trust here means to to rest in, to confide in, to rely upon. This is the person whose hope and refuge are exclusively in the covenant Lord. They have committed all to Christ. This is the person who, who clings to Christ, who's confident that God will do what he says he will do. This is the God whom the hymn writer writes about, and come ye sinners, venture on him, venture holy, let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good, you see. It's him. It's this God. Not the pantheon of gods, for there are no pantheon of gods. They are less than nothing. There is only the living God who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And then the psalmist uses a simile to describe those who trust in Yahweh, this covenant Lord. They are like Mount Zion. They are like those who cannot be moved. You see, unlike the believing world all around us, trials come, the culture dissolves, Western civilization washes out to sea on the rocky shoals. They literally melt Kind of like in the Wizard of Oz, the witch, as she melts. That's what's happening all around us. But those, the Word of God says, those who trust in the Lord Yahweh and abide in his word, they have a stability. It's not that they're immune from trouble. Yes, they go through trouble. They live in the same world with the unbeliever. But there's a calmness about the man, the woman, the boy, the girl who, who trust in the Lord. They're not fretting. They're They're not anxious, but through prayer and supplication, they're making their requests known to God. And and the supernatural peace of Christ raised is coming and comforting them, not giving them every answer to every dilemma and question they might face, but yet God in his supernatural peace comes and attends that saint, that child of God, because They trust in him. They cling to him. They have confidence that God is God. They cannot be moved. Now, Mount Zion cannot be moved because it's the place in the Old Covenant where the covenant Lord chose to dwell. It was his holy sanctuary. In the Old Testament, it was God's dwelling place. It was located in Jerusalem, the mountain of God. Now, Jerusalem was not the highest peak, But it came to symbolize God's people, God's Zion, the place where God was worshipped in spirit and in truth. If you wanted to worship the living God, you couldn't do that in Philistia. You couldn't do it in Damascus. You couldn't do it in Assyria. You couldn't do it in Babylon. You couldn't do it in China. You had to come to Israel. You had to go to the city of God. You had to go to Zion. You had to go up the mount, as it were, to Zion to worship him in spirit and in truth. This is the place God had set apart 
You see, literally, Zion is a solid rock. It's a mountain. It's unmovable. It's granite. It's not built in the sand. Right? It's not built there in the sands outside of Egypt where Israel was delivered. No, Yahweh put his house, his Zion, on a mountain, a pillar of strength, granite, if you will. And saints, when we trust God, when we choose not to lean on our own understanding but acknowledge him, committing ourselves to him, totally to him, we need not be shaken nor moved. Psalm 40, right? He's, he's taken the child of God out of the pit and he's placed our feet on the rock, Jesus Christ. You see, the righteous are those who trust Christ. We're not those who melt and panic when times get tough. When everything around the godly is dissolving and collapsing, we sing. We write hymns like Horatio Spafford, who, who lost four daughters at sea. We go on a ship, and we take the ship, and we go out into the middle of the Atlantic, and we get to the very spot, the GPS, the longitude and latitude where the four daughters were lost. And we write it as well with my soul because we believe the God who made a promise who swore by his own name, who secured it with the blood of his son, who demonstrates his love, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died, who comes to seek and to save the lost, who could care nothing for him, who, who shake their fist in his face. You see, this is our God. This is what the saints do. We trust him. We have a stability because we've attached ourselves to the covenant Lord. You see, stability is the blessing of those who trust God. But the word of God is also clear. Now listen to this. This is conversely, this is the other side. Those who do not trust God, those outside of Jesus Christ are as unstable as the sea. How stable is a glass or a pond or a river? Now it's mighty, it's strong but it's incredibly unstable. That's how the wicked are described. Outside of Christ, they're unstable in all they do. Like, they're like chaff. They're like tumbleweed on, in the desert, in Arizona, outside of Phoenix. You're driving, going west, and you're seeing the tumbleweed just blowing in the wind. Like cotton. No foundation. No stability, no rock, unstable in all that they do. They're like a mist, right, that comes off the James River as I come into work early in the morning. When I go home, you know where that mist is? It's gone. It's gone. That's your life, beloved. Each one of our lives are like that, but a mist gone. Cut flowers, right? Even the good ones at Costco, right? You spend a little more money, you get those nice roses. I think you can get them for like 10 bucks. That's pretty cheap. But even those roses last but for a moment. But the ungodly, they're like the, the sea. But the godly, on the other hand, are like those who trust the Lord, have a permanence. They have a staying power. They have an endurance. 
Jesus gives the, uh, the story of two builders there in Matthew 7 who illustrate the very point I'm trying to make here. They're two builders. The first builder is likened to the man who hears his word and builds his nice home there on the outer banks on the rock. Storms come, northeaster comes, hurricanes come from the South Atlantic. And that house stands. Why does that house stand? That house stands because that house was built on the rock. But there's another builder in the story. This is the man who builds the same house there in the Outer Banks, but rather than build it on the rock, he he builds it on the sand. Now, from its outward appearance, it looks dandy and fine and beautiful. It looks just like the house that's built on the rock. But the same storm comes. The exact same storm. The storms are not different. The only thing different is one man chose to build on rock. One man chose to build on sand. But the storm comes and wipes that house away. And great was its fall. Jesus likens that man to the man who hears his word and doesn't practice it. Doesn't obey it. Now he might in turn talk a good game. He might talk a great game. He might talk a game as good as any man who's ever lived. But the storm reveals the reality, does it not? Those who trust in the Lord have a stability. They know God to be faithful. They cling to him. They hold fast to him. In the darkness, they hold because they have no place else to go. They're white-knuckled, just like that, right? Getting ready to teach Anna how to drive. I'm interested to see if she will grab the steering wheel like my sons before them. Like that. First time they get behind that vehicle, they grab it like that. That's faith. That's what faith does. Faith takes the promises of God and it clings to them. It holds fast to them. It doesn't understand all mysteries. It doesn't have every answer to every question that they might be curious about. It just continues to believe. It's tenacious. It continues to reach out to Jesus because it's a living faith. It's a a living thing. It's not just this nominal proposition. No, it's it's living. It's organic because it flows from the living God. He, He gives you faith, right, to believe his promises. Friends, don't be mistaken. Only the one who trusts in Christ, the rock of Zion, will stand. Not only in this life, when trials come, and trials will come in your life, they're going to come. It's in the script. When all of life is collapsing around you, God's word will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. But notice as well, Notice how God's stability and the stability of his word will hold you fast in the next life as well. Notice the end of verse 1. Like Zion, they will abide for how long? Two decades? Three millennia? It will abide forever. Ever and ever. It cannot fail. It will not fail. 
God's word remains. All the assaults that have been on the word of God from so many sectors of the world, yet God's word continues to remain. It has a staying power. It has a stability. You see, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Friends, today, are you trusting in the word of God? Do you have a theoretical abstract knowledge of trust? Maybe a a Webster's definition of trust. Are you clinging to it? Like Like a suffocating man clinging for air. Right, Grayson? He said in Sunday school. That's what faith does. That's the first blessing. Those who trust God know his stability. Secondly, those who trust God know his security. Verses Two to three. Notice here that the figure of speech changes. God now is pictured. Now listen to this. God now is pictured as the mountains. God himself says, I'm like mountains that surround my people, my Zion. He likens himself to a mountain. Verse two. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the covenant Lord surrounds his people. You see, Mountains are not only stable, they're secure. They're secure. The city of Jerusalem sits atop a mountain surrounded by six other mountains. And here the psalmist compares God to those mountains. And the mountains, in the metaphor, serve as a garrison, as centennials, as soldiers that surround the Zion of God, as watchmen. 365, seven days a week, right? 24 hours a day, surrounding, protecting the city. You see, friends, our God is like that. It's as if his arms were were functioning as walls, right? Metaphorically, anthropologically, he's he's gathering his hens, as Jesus would say. "I, I long to gather you, right? That's our God. That's what he's like. He's stable. He's secure. He he longs to gather you. He he longs to protect you, just as the mountains protect Jerusalem. So the Lord protects his people. You see, he would have us know that nothing will come into our lives that does not first pass through the nail-scarred hands of Jesus. I don't care what you're going to go through in this life. Nothing can befall you that does not first go through the hands of Jesus. Nothing will befall you that does not serve to advance his glory and your ultimate good. Does that mean it's going to be fun all the time? No. Does that mean you're going to be happy all the time? No. Does that mean you're going to be oftentimes perplexed and yet still holding fast? Crying out, I believe, help my unbelief? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the narrative. That's the story. That's the way it works for the Christian. You see, all things must work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, if you don't love God and you haven't been called according to his purpose, everything's not working towards your good this morning. It's actually, conversely, working toward the very opposite for you. But you see, beloved, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, we know that an all-wise, all-good, all-loving God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. You see, those who know the blessing 
of his security, know that he has ordained all things for his own good and our glory. Notice also the security he provides in verse 3. Those who trust him provide security. Notice the security he provides in verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness, that is the rule, the reign of wickedness, shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Now, beloved, we all know too well the reality of the wickedness and evil that, that the righteous are not immune from its effects. We live in the real world. Right? It's not Pollyanna. It's not, it's not shrill and superficial. The psalmist lived in the real world. He lived east of Eden. He knows. That's why we love the psalms because they scratch where we itch because existentially, existentially we know that the psalmist knows the living God. He knows him to be his stability, his security. That's why he cries to him. Because he sees the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. And yet we know that God is not the author of evil, right? Evil does not operate in a vacuum around us beyond the purview of God's sovereignty, right? The Old Testament people had to learn this again and again. Ancient Israel was one of compromise, their history of disobedience and compromise. Israel obeyed and she was protected and lived under the blessing of God. God was her protector. This week I was reading the story in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Remember that story, Jehoshaphat, where Damascus and Aram and all the nations have surrounded the nation? He doesn't know what to do. He lifts his eyes to heaven. He said, Lord, we don't know what to do. We're just a small remnant, but our eyes are on you. You know what God says? He says, take the choir and put it out front. Who does this? The living God. That's the way he fights. Put the choir out front. Put the sopranos and the altos and the baritones, put them out front. Right? Put them out front and behold my salvation. That's the way God fights his battles. Not with horses, not with chariots, not with F-18s, Abram tanks, military might, but by his spirit through his word. He alone fought her battles when she looked to him. But when the people of God forsook the Lord, judgment came, and evil for a season was allowed to rule. And yet God did not allow unrighteousness to rule the people forever. Notice why. Why didn't God just give them over forever? Notice what he says there. Verse 3 continues. Lest the righteous stretch out their hand to do wrong. You see, saints, God will not allow evil to triumph but for so long, lest his people succumb to temptation and lose heart. God will only take you through the fire but for so long only take his people through the raging river but for so long now I don't know how that long that duration will be for you you don't know how long for me but yet we know it will be just for a season Alexander McLaren says this and I think it's very insightful regarding this reality of the duration of the trials of the children of God God knows how long a trial must last in order that it may test faith, thereby strengthening it, not confounding it, lest weak souls fall into sin. God knows when to say enough. 
He knows when. Church, our God is so good. He is so kind. He knows your struggles. He ordains them for his glory and your good. You can trust him knowing that the one who ordains your trials is the one who spared not his own son for your soul. One of my favorite texts in all the word of God as we listen and hear the compassion of the living God is found in Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. Moses, almost in a throwaway line, speaks of the groaning of the children of God under the hand of Pharaoh because of their slavery. And Moses tells us they cried out for help in Exodus 2.24. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Now listen to this. God heard. God remembered his covenant. God saw and God knew. That's your God. That will preach. He sees you this morning. He knows you. His stability, his security is on the line. Thirdly, those who trust God know his goodness. Verse 4. Notice here the psalmist shifts to a prayer. Right? Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. And who are the good and upright in heart? Verse 1, those who trust in the Lord, those who, like their father Abraham, heard the sermon God preached to him, believed it, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Those who are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, who are being progressively sanctified by faith. The psalmist prays, do good, O Lord, to those who trust you. You desire to give them the kingdom, may you do so. Bless those who walk in your ways, who walk not in the counsel of the wicked, but delight in your law. You are good. May they know that your love and your mercy, as David would say, are better than life. I want them to know it. I want them to taste it. I want them to experience it. That's what the psalmist is praying. You see, those who know God, know his stability, his security, his goodness, and fourthly, those who trust God know his holiness, verse 5. In verse 5, we have a contrast. Notice there, right? It begins with the word but. There's a contrast. That's a conjunction in English, right? It's a, con- it's a contrast. He's going to contrast those who have a continuing, ongoing trust in Yahweh, who are good and upright, with those who turn aside, who fall away. Notice what he says in verse 5. But those who turn aside, meaning at one time they were walking in the narrow path, those who turn aside to the crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with the evildoers. Now, when you hear this verse, you should be sobered. To be honest, it's very frightening in some ways. To those who fail to persevere, listen to me, those who begin well, who do not finish well, those who went out with us but did not continue with us, were not of us, those who had profession of faith but no possession of Jesus, those who failed to persevere and continue in faith, that is to apostatize, that's right, this Presbyterian believes it, There's such a thing as apostasy. There's such a thing, church, as not finishing. 
Not working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those who turn back, the word of God warns. Notice what the word of God says. The Lord, the covenant Lord, will lead away with the evildoers. The living God himself will give you over. Friends, what we have here is a healthy reminder of our responsibility to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not to presume on the grace of God. Beloved, the faith that saves is a persevering faith. A faith that justifies is a faith that works through love. You see, God works to will within us by giving us a justifying and sanctifying faith. He doesn't give us just the the benefit of justification. No, he gives us the the double benefit of justification and sanctification. Those he justifies, he also sanctifies. You see, a faith that receives and rests in Christ alone is a faith that yields obedience to the commands of God. It trembles at the warnings and embraces the promises of God. That's what living, justifying faith does. And then I conclude with this. Verse 5, there's a final blessing I didn't mention But notice the final blessing for those who trust God. At the end of verse 5, peace be upon Israel. Well, here what we have is a cause and effect. Those who trust God know his stability. They know his security. They know his goodness. They know his holiness. And those who walk in faith, that is a living faith, a faith that works through love, that's resting in Jesus and yet pursuing Jesus all the time, all the same time, is a faith that has peace. He grants them peace, right? It's not a promise to get out of the storms, but Christ has promised you that in the midst of the storms, he says, peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not them be afraid. Believe in me. You see, the one who is our stability, our security and goodness and holiness calls us to rest in his perfect peace. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You see, that's the peace that passes all understanding. That's the peace that's not panicking when the culture's dissolving around him. You see, the storms are raging, the waves rise, the winds are blowing, and you remain standing, not melting, not panicking. Because you are trusting in the rock, Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, well, how can I conclude? How can I conclude by driving it home, perhaps with an illustration? Let me give you an illustration of the man or the saint who trusts in God, who knows God to be his stability, his security, knows him to be good, and knows him to be holy. So he's never presumptive with grace. This is a man who's gone on to heaven. But God called to walk through the valley of Baca. That is the valley of weeping. That's what Baca is in Hebrew. It weeps. To weep. Right? The, the, through the, the dark night of the soul. God in his providence gave this man the gift of suffering that he might learn to trust not in himself but in God who raises the dead. He died of cancer 
in 2018, I think. He's an ordinary saint. I don't want to make much of him. But he served an extraordinary God. So much so that God would often bless him in his meditation on the Word of God, and he did in his memoirs. He would die within six months of when these words were written. And he says this. Even with all the twists and turns in my journey, and it was hard, I would not change a thing. I don't look back with regrets, and I look forward with hope in Christ. Christ is in all of the details of our lives and struggles. Though we pray for wisdom for ourselves and the medical caregivers, Christ is intimately involved and produces wisdom from where we would not or could not imagine. In our earthly travails, we should never want to get so caught up with the anxiety of them that we forget the overarching, overarching blessing that God gave us, not only in our creation but in our regeneration and the effectual calling we have in Christ. We don't come to worship on Sunday morning downtrodden and defeated, but victorious in Christ, no matter our earthly estate. Now, this man's dying. His body's being eaten by cancer. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but I need to read it and hear it myself. Life is too short to miss the beauty of what we have in Christ for a moment. I will stand on Janet's prayer request for us with one addition which is humility and patience. Though God has worked those graces in our lives, they can never be too strong. Thank you for your prayers, your visits, and encouragements. Now listen to this. The light of the sun, that is S-U-N, has nothing on the countenance of the saints in raising their pleas to our Lord and Savior. I leave you with this from Philippians four nineteen and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, beloved, those who trust God know him to be stable. They're like Mount Zion. They're rocks. Because they're extraordinary? No. They're quite ordinary. Quite ordinary. But they serve an extraordinary God. They know him not only to be their stability, they know him to be their security. That God is like the mountains that surround Jerusalem. He surrounds me. He catches me up in his arms, as it were. He beds me to come to him with every care, with every concern, because he's the living God. So I can walk through the valley of Baco. I can go through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they, they comfort me. He's real. I have no needs. I have him. What more could a man or a child of God want than to have him? I don't want anything. Give me Jesus. They know him to be good. You see, David knew God to be good, and he knew God to be holy. He didn't presume on grace. Oh, yeah, Jesus died for me. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What's for lunch? Uh, you know, can, Pastor, you need to hurry up. I've got to get out of here. Man, what a blessing, what an honor it was for me to walk with him. One of the highlights, Levi, of my, my ministerial career. It will be so in your life as well.
God gives us these choice gifts. An ordinary saint serving an extraordinary God. His stability, his security, his goodness, because he knew his holiness. May God give us strength to persevere, to trust God, to grow in trust, to become like little children in our dependence upon him. You know how you're going to get there? He's going to take you through adversity. I'm sorry. Oh, pastor, I like the sermon except for that. Oh, no, but that's it. He's going to take you through adversity. He's got he's to mortify that flesh that's so quick to grab hold and look for answers and solutions rather than him. He wants to wean you. He wants to make you like his son who says, not my will, but thy will be done. Let this cup pass, but for the joy before him endured the cross that he might secure your salvation. That's our God. May he give us grace to believe him and trust him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We pray now and ask that you would grow us up as we become more childlike in our faith and dependence on you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.